We're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew 5, we'll begin in verse 17. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Yes, there we go. User error. Um, as a pastor, I come, you know, bearing this sermon every Sunday, knowing that there are many of you here that are suffering. You've had a week filled with sorrows and hurts and pains. Um, we, as a church, have uh, been walking through uh, a bit of suffering with April Wilson and um, the unexpected tragedy of her son. Um, and so, I just want to take this moment and just kind of. Uh, lay our hearts before the Lord and ask Him to breathe life into us. Uh, we have a text that seemingly has nothing to do with suffering, and yet my hope is that you will be encouraged in it nonetheless. And so uh, let's just pray and ask Christ to meet us here today. Father God, we have uh, all been through unique weeks, Father. Some people in here have uh, been on the edge of their seat waiting to see how you would provide for their bills, Father. There are some here who have uh, had heart palpitations, Father, and worried about an oncoming heart, heart attack, Father. There are some here that have watched loved ones suffer, uh, God, and, and little babies suffering, Father. There are some, uh, Lord, that are going to have to bury their son. Father, there are some that are anxious about treatments starting and chemotherapies happening and um, what kind of news might the scans give us, Father. At this moment, I pray that we will just offer our hearts to you, lay it out before you, the good Father. And at this moment, you'll encourage us by looking to Jesus to get our eyes uh, away from our suffering, Father, knowing that uh, you work in the suffering, knowing that you have a purpose in the pain, Father, knowing that you are working out a million and one good things for your glory, Father. And yet, Father, at this moment, we just still our hearts and ask you to teach us and make us more into the kingdom citizens you want us to be. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the big tensions throughout church history has been the question of the law in light of Christ. Now that Christ has come, does this mean that we need no longer concern ourselves about God's righteous standards? Must we bother with the old laws like, you shall not covet, or you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? To many, Christian freedom has meant the freedom from any kind of righteous standard, right living, or wrong living. There's been freedom to just kind of do as we wish. 
Now, as a pastor sitting in a counseling office or as a pastor who has walked through uh, these things with many people, I have heard people justify gossip, porn addictions, fly-off-the-handle type anger toward their wives, random divorces, and a long list of other sins saying things like, you know what the Bible says, pastor, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You and no one else has the right to judge me. I just I find it sad because they're only speaking a partial truth. While they're right, I and no one else have the ability to judge them. They're absolutely wrong in their definition of freedom, which means they have a very limited, stunted freedom. The definition of freedom, freedom that Christ has brought, is not merely a freedom from the law's standard of righteous uh, of righteous living or a freedom to sin, it's not, a right, it's not a freedom that's been given to us that we may do whatever we want. Instead, God has freed us in Christ so that we can now pursue Jesus. So my hope is, is if you're here and you're thinking that because you have, for some reason or another, way back in, way back in camp, maybe when you were a kid, at some point you walked the aisle and now you profess Jesus. Now that means that you can just keep calm and carry on in your fleshly desires. My hope is that Matthew 5 will confront that firmly and show you why that is wrong. Because Christian freedom, the way that God has intended to give it, is not a freedom from what God wants. And it's not a freedom to now pursue whatever we want. Instead, it's a, first, it's a freedom so that we can now obey God. It's a freedom to obey. A freedom to love God the way that we should. A freedom to flee from lust. A freedom to not gossip. Not a freedom to gossip, but a freedom to not gossip. And I, as I think as we'll see in Matthew five seventeen through 48, which we're going to deal with the first installment of that, I think chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 it's kind of the header. This is the, this is the beginning of everything you need to know about the law and the kingdom of God. What follows after is specific, practical ways that we live out this fulfilled law in, in life. What Matthew five seventeen through 20 is going to show us today is that Christ came not to destroy God's holy law, but rather he came to fulfill it by giving us holy, obedient hearts that love God and hate sin. Christ has not come to destroy the law. He's come to fulfill it by giving you holy and obedient hearts that truly love God and hate sin. Now, I think this is an important aspect of living a flourishing life in the kingdom of God. There's so many of us who are kind of starving, we're, we're withering, and I think in part it's because we are keeping one foot in our sin and in our worldly flesh thinking that Christ has bought the right for us to stay there. And instead, a thriving, flourishing kingdom life is one that actively, passionately flees from sin and pursues God. Now, from the moment that God gave his people the law through Moses, there was a glaring problem. The people had the law, but they did not have a heart to obey it. Even Moses, while he's telling about God's redemptive work in Deuteronomy, he laments to his people, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. 
Later in the promised land, Joshua has just completed the conquest. The inheritance has been divided up. He calls the people. That's the famous line. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people say, who are we to disobey God? We will do as he says. And Joshua, in in one of the most pessimistic statements in the Bible, says, you are not able to obey God, for he is a holy God. From then on, the entire history of Israel works to show that even with the law, which was given by God himself, written by God's own hand, unless God also gives his people a new heart, they will never be able to obey the law. Now, we see that in David. David's as close of a man after God's own heart as the Old Testament had seen up to date. And yet... Even a man after God's own heart still finds it within himself to be able to use his position to to commit adultery with Bathsheba and to murder her husband. His son Solomon was no better. He had a mind full of wisdom, but he has a heart that wandered away from God. He has a heart that turned from God. And what's more, every single king after Solomon ultimately falls to the same thing. They are eventually proven to be not perfectly righteous, And therefore, because the king's not perfectly righteous, neither are the people by implication. Because the king has not attained righteousness, neither have the people. Now, there's the twofold problem of the Old Testament. I'm going to summarize your Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament professor, so I am authoritative in the way I say this, okay? I just want you to know. Two points that the Old Testament wants you to see. Your sinful hearts are ill-equipped to obey God. Who you are in and of yourself is ill-equipped to obey God. But number two, we have yet, according to the Old Testament, mind you, up to the point of the Old Testament, we had yet to have a king who could lead us into righteousness. So what do we need according to the Old Testament? The redemptive narrative tells us that we need two things. We need a perfectly righteous king, and we need a new righteous heart. That will enable us to obey God. Without a king and without a new heart, we remain in sin. Without a king, a righteous king at that, a perfectly righteous king who does not sin himself, who obeys God, who doesn't rebel, and a heart that is given the love to obey God itself, we do not stand a chance to do what God wants us to do. I think the point in all that is to show you how completely hopeless that we are in and of ourselves. Okay, so I think that's the two things that Old Testament shows us. Now, the good news of that is that God has promised to give both of these things in what we have come to call the new covenant. Uh, take Ezekiel 36, for example. Beginning in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five, God promises his sinful people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, this heart that is incapable of obeying God, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The result of this new heart then, God says, is that his people will then walk in his statues and be careful to obey his rules. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that almost immediately after that, in Ezekiel 37, 24, he says, 
He gives the promise of a king. My servant David, referring to the son of David, the Davidic king, shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd. And then what's the result of that? They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Same thing, same result. So the question is, is what causes us to obey God according to God's own word? New heart, new king. Now, according to the promise then, God's redemptive work must come with both of those things if we are to attain righteousness. Now, in this, God declares that his law is not something that's just meant to be thrown out. His law, his stated desires for living a flourishing life in this world do not fade. Instead, the new covenant, in the new covenant, God will enable his people to obey. They will live a flourishing life, a faithful life under the reign of the eternal king, all because they have been given a new center of affection, a new heart made to love and obey God. Now, I think as Matthew shows us, and Matthew makes this absolutely clear, both the new heart and the reign of the new David have come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That, who is, brought, that is who the new king is, and therefore, since the new king has come, we now may have a new heart that is able to obey God. So as we dive into Jesus' discourse on the law, uh, discourse just simply means conversation, um, Jesus' conversation on the law, it is helpful to consider what the law has to do with the Davidic king. Why, why does? If, if Matthew's point is to show Jesus as the son of David, if his point is to show Jesus as the king, why talk about the law at all? What does the law have to do with the Davidic king? How does Jesus' teaching of the law prove him to be the promised king of old? How does it show him to be the anointed Messiah? Well, the first part of that answer is that Jesus, as the Davidic king, fulfills the law. Jesus says as much in Matthew five seventeen through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, the coming of the Davidic king does not mean that the law and prophets simply fade away. They're not just thrown off as, as irrelevant. That's just old stuff. That's antiquated. It's gone. It's important to understand what Jesus means by fulfill here. Because by fulfill, he doesn't mean, hey, I've come to trash it. Hey, I've come to throw it in the dumpster. That's not what fulfill means, but that's often what we think of when we read this text. He's got, hey, I've come to do away with this. But he actually says, I've not come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. So it must be something different than just simply trashing the old law. Broadly speaking, fulfill means to give the true or complete meaning to something. And Jesus definitely does that in these six restatements of the law, right? He elevates. Here's what it says. Here's what you think it means, but here's what it really means. He does that with murder, Here's what murder, here's what the scripture says, you shall not murder, and you think it means just don't kill people, but I'm telling you it actually means to not be hateful to your brother. So he elevates the true meaning of the law. But the word fulfilled does much more than that. He's not just simply come to, to correct all of our bad law and our, our, our bad hermeneutics on the law. He's come to do something even more than that. So it's not less than him clarifying, but it's more than him clarifying. Jesus uses the word fulfill in the same way Matthew has used the word fulfill in Matthew 1 through 4. 
Jesus has come to complete God's will and God's word. He's come to complete it. By fulfilling the law, Jesus brings the law to its proper and intended goal. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a destination? That's essentially what's in mind here when we're talking about fulfilling the law. Jesus brings the law to its properly intended destination. What's that? A people who in faith obey God under the reign of a perfectly righteous king. That's the, that's the destination that the law has always intended. I think it's similar to what Paul says in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end. That doesn't mean the finality of. It means, it, the word is actually tell us. The destination. For Christ is the destination. The goal of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Jesus. The law is dry, the, Think of the law as a car that's trying to drive us somewhere. Where does it drive us? What's the destination? To Jesus. That's what it's intended to do. So, the law's destination, as we see in Scripture, has always been from its inception, from the time that Moses stood on Mount Sinai and gave the law, the law's, the law's intention has always been Jesus Christ. So when he comes to fulfill the law, here's simply what he's saying. Hey guys, I'm not here to trash the law because the law points to me and it's only in me that you will obey the law. He wants you to understand those two things. The law points to him, but then it's only in him that you're able to obey the law. He is the one who's come to make us righteous, to make us obedient people. He is the one that's come to restore us back to faithfulness, back to the life that God intended for us to live all the way back in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And as I think, as as will be clearly seen in the gospel's progress, as Matthew writes, God's work of writing the law on the hearts of his people is accomplished when Jesus dies for our sin and then when Jesus raises again from the grave. So that being said, what does the law have to do with Jesus' kingship? Well, the law displays Jesus as king. The law simultaneously forces your eyes to be transfixed on God and then it prepares your hearts and your hands to be able to serve him. It shows you without any doubt that you are utterly hopeless in and of yourself to please God. But then the law does us a great grace. If we are utterly hopeless in and of ourselves to obey God, if there's nothing in us that is able to attain righteousness, where then must we find it? How then can we please God? How then can we stand in a right relationship with God? And it's at that moment the law lifts our head after beating us down, lifts our head and says, look to Christ. And so the law points to him. But then Jesus says, hey, God still has an intention for your life. God still has holy standards. So in that light, the law has an ongoing function in the kingdom of God. The law's endurance in the kingdom is stated in verses 18 through 19. It says, Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot from the law, uh, from the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relax, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, he says it here. He does not intend for the law to go away as long as heaven and earth stand. That means until the new heaven and earth come, until 
the next stage of redemption comes, the culmination of redemption, the consummation of redemption, then the law is going to keep standing. So he says explicitly, he does not want his people, he does not intend for us to preach a message of lawlessness. I do whatever you want because you can. That's not what he intends. His explicit desire about the law is to do two things. Teach the law, do it. He even goes so far to say that's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Teach the law, do it. Teach God's standards, teach God's righteousness, teach what God wants from people's lives, and then live it out yourself. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Now, before, you know, there's, there's, there's two types of people in here. There's some of you that are like, yes, let's make the rules. Let's, let's list them out and let's checklist them off. Yes, this is what I've been waiting for. I'm a rule follower. Let's do this. And then there's others of you that are kind of like, ah, oh, crud, we're going to have to wear ties on Sunday again, right? Well, the reality is, is that what Jesus is teaching about the law here has nothing to do with either one of those things. He does not mean that we are to follow a mere list of rules. He does not intend for you to woodenly obey the law with heartless acquiescence. Who cares about the state of your heart? Just do it. Who cares whether inside you're actually lusting? Just don't actually commit an affair. Right? That's not what he wants. Instead, what Jesus is offering here is a heart change that comes with a real obedience and love for God. Do you see what he's offering? I'm a dad, as most of you have heard many times, and I'm going to be dad again, as most of you have heard many times. Um, And one of the things that I have learned as a dad, and this is a perfect illustration, if you don't understand the difference between heartless, wooden acquiescence to the law and love-filled honoring, glory-giving obedience, have kids, and you'll see it really quickly. Because there's a clear difference between a child looking at you saying, you told me to sit down, and I'm sitting down, but I'm standing in my heart. (laughs) You told me not to hit sissy, but I guarantee you I am in here. I mean, it's very clear. You just see it in their face, right? There's this... You can't, re- and, it, and it's hard because as a, as a father, you're like, okay, I need to discipline my child. I'm trying to shepherd my child's heart. And yet, he did exactly what I told him to do. My friends, that's not what Jesus intends of this law. What he wants is for you not to sit down on the outside because God said sit down, and then for you to be like, but I'm standing on the inside. No, he wants you to obey in such a way that you in true righteousness, which means true love for what God wants, will obey. That's what he means when he says that in order to obey the law, in order to live in the way that he wants you to, to obey, in, in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, is really what he says, he says you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says plainly, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if it were left up to us, that's incredibly bad news. If you don't know who the scribes and Pharisees are, they're arguably the most holy, most righteous people on the planet earth at that day and time. I mean, these are guys that love to follow God's rules so much that they made additional rules just to keep from accidentally breaking those rules. 
And so you get the law, for example, don't break the Sabbath. And they're like, gosh, I really don't want to break the Sabbath. I tell you what, we're going to come up with a rule that defines what a Sabbath, Sabbath day walk is. Because we don't want to accidentally walk beyond and then accidentally break the Sabbath. So these are guys who love following rules so much they made additional rules to surround those rules so that they wouldn't accidentally break the real rules. But that's not the kind of righteousness that gets one into heaven, into the kingdom of heaven. It's a righteousness that exceeds that kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that goes beyond that. So what kind of righteousness is Jesus referring to? Well, let's think about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. How do, if we have to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs to enter into the kingdom of heaven, I think it's nice to know what the standard is. Well, what's their righteousness? Well, Jesus says... In Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9, he, he comes out and he's in this tussle with the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And he says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So in this light, he, Jesus is pointing out to the fact that they're doing all the right things. They're saying all the right things. But the righteousness is nothing more than external, superficial action. It's just, it's just doing it. It's that whole sitting down on the outside, but standing up on the inside. Their hearts are far from him. Their hands look clean, but inside they are tombs. They're dead in their love for God. We get even a, bigger, a better picture from the Apostle Paul, who thinking back on his people, which remember, Paul was a Pharisee. So he knows what righteousness of scribes and Pharisees looks like, and he knows it's not enough. And here's what he says. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal from God, a zeal for God. So in this and what he's saying, he's admitting, he's saying, when I was a Pharisee, I, come, I had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then that's when Paul follows, as I already quoted, for Christ is the end, the destination of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So just taking all this together, what's the overall picture that we get of the, law, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Here's what you find. Their righteousness is external, superficial. Again, they do all the right things, but they have no inward love for God. They have no, their whole desire... It's to look holy in front of other people, for other people to call them holy and to admire all their rule-keeping. Oh, man, he hasn't broken a Sabbath day walk in generations. They want people to praise them for how holy they are. It's external and superficial. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, which means they know nothing about the, God, the way God actually works. Even more pointedly, they're self-reliant. They try to establish their own righteousness. That's what they want. They don't want a righteousness given to them. They want a righteousness built by their own hands. And then, topping it all off, it's a righteousness that refuses to submit to God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the righteousness that must be exceeded in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Don't have a righteousness that's external, superficial. Don't have a righteousness that ignores the way that God does things in the world, and as he's 
declared in his word, don't have a righteousness that you seek to build with your own hands, which means implicitly you have to admit you have no ability to make righteousness. You are an idol factory, not a righteous factory. You're not constantly churning these things out in and of yourself. Your heart, the main engine that keeps everything running, is broken. And when it runs, it builds idols. It builds sin. It does not build righteousness, which means you need someone else to come in and give a better righteousness. Someone else to come in and change you from the inside out. And that comes only by submission. Humble submission to the righteousness of God by trusting only in Jesus Christ. Now, I think when Jesus is laying this out, he's implicitly telling his hearers, this is the kind of righteousness you need to get into the kingdom of heaven, which means that he's implicitly telling them, you must believe in me, Jesus, in order to have this kind of true, lasting righteousness. Now, second... Jesus' teaching on the law proves his kingship by his display of authority, okay? He repeatedly says this, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, if you're a good Jew, and you're listening really well, right now, now I'll just tell you, um, if I'm sitting in a group of guys here, and they say, well, you know, I've heard it said, you know, and they come up with some weird idiom that's from Texas, and, you know, whatever. And then I came in and say, yeah, but I say... There's no one that's going to be like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. He just confronted an old Texas idiom, though some of you might. Um, but here Jesus does something pretty crazy, right? And it, 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 it's very subtle. You have heard it said, we would expect him to say, you have heard the Pharisees say, or we'd expect him to say something, you have heard your rabbi say, he doesn't say that. He quotes Torah law. You have had it said, you shall not murder. That's not just an interpretation. That's direct quotation. And then he says, but I say to you, what has Jesus just done? He's put his words on the level of the law. He's put his words on the level of God's words. He's, he's basically said, listen, God said... But I say, which is a claim to be what? God. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's laying out for them this God-given law. He speaks with the authority of God. When Moses came to quote God's law, he had to say, you, you know, guys, it was up on the mountain, and God said. Jesus doesn't have to say that. He just says, I say. Which shows his authority. Which shows that he is the king we've all waited for. God in flesh who lives with us and leads us back into righteousness. Now it goes even deeper than that though. Because additionally to, to showing us that he's giving us his word. I think he's fulfilling what was demanded of Israel's king in Deuteronomy 17. When, when uh, De- in Deuteronomy it says that when a, king com- a new king comes to the throne. He's to handwrite a copy of the law. It's to be in his own handwritten copy. And it's to be approved by Levitical priests. And the point in that is, is if the king's righteous, he will lead the people in righteousness, right? If he knows the law, does the law, he will lead the people to do the law. And you see that over and over again, right, in, 
in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, typically if the king is righteous and leading in a righteous way, the people are to follow. It doesn't mean perfectly. We're not talking about perfect righteousness. But the king is to live in such a way. He is to be the Israelite all Israel was to be. Jesus is that here. He knows the law. Not only that, he wrote the law. He didn't have to have a handwritten copy. He could just speak it and boom, it's law. But he lives it, lives, lives it out. He is the perfect one that we're all intended to be. He is the perfectly obedient person of God that God desires of us. So he reinforces, reinforces the intent of the law, but he also gives the law. Now that being said, Jesus does not take away from any of the Old Testament laws. In fact, we can argue he doesn't morph or transform the laws in any kind of way, necessarily. They are kind of new in the way that he teaches them, but it's still the heart of the law. This is what God has always intended. They sound like new laws because they're given new emphasis and they're given a, a, a new thrust and definitely new standard is being laid there. But at the same time, arguably, we can say that this is what God has always wanted. It emphasizes real, if you remember, what does Jesus say the law teaches? What is the greatest two commandments? Love God, love others. That's always been the intent behind the laws. And so when he comes and he says, do not, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, anyone who is angry, wrathful towards his brother, they are guilty, they, they are uh, deserving of judgment. He is teaching the true intent. What do those two things have to do with one another? They're both an infraction of love for God and love for others. The same hands that murder people is the same heart that hates people. The same hands that would stab someone, shoot someone, strangle someone, is the same heart that whispers, I wish I could strangle them sometimes. We've all said that, right? Or is that just me? Is that a confession? Okay. (laughs) And so according to Matthew... You have this messianic king who's come, and he's now giving the law, and Matthew wants us to understand it's only as you submit yourselves to the authority of the king that you may be righteous in God's sight. The point is of of crucial importance. The promised son of David and the righteousness that God demands necessarily come together. Do you hear that? You cannot have righteousness without the king. And the king will lead you to righteousness. They, the two come together. Pharisees had the law. They had a form of self-made righteousness, even though it wasn't really righteousness. But they had no king, and they did not submit to him as king. Therefore, they were ultimately unrighteous. Without a king, every single human deserves the epitaph of judges, Without a king, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It is a mathematical problem. Two plus two equals four. No king in humanity equals sin. That's that's just the way it states it. In the words of Isaiah, without a shepherd, we're all wandering sheep who all go our own way. And so without a king, we remain in this predicament. And yet, it's because the king has come that we may now repent and live in the way that God wants us to live. Of course, it naturally leads to ask, how has the Davidic king restored us to righteous living? One of my um, commentaries, uh, in one of my commentaries, Thomas Schreiner is definitely correct when he says this. Any theology of the law must not be severed from the storyline of the gospel, which culminates in the death and resurrection of Christ. 
So, so in other words, if you're going to talk about the law, you better get to the cross. If you're going to talk about the law in any form, you better get to the tomb at some point. So I think in all this discussion about Jesus fulfilling the law, we have to ask, how does he fulfill the law? How does he lead us back to righteousness? He's the king. He offers a new heart. But how does that happen? Jesus fulfilled righteousness by nature of who he is and what he did. The Son of God. This is the gospel. If you're wondering where we've been getting to, if you're wondering where the, where the gospel message is going to come into, it's here. The Son of God has come in flesh. He came, according to the words of Matthew 1, to save his people from their sins. He did this by living a perfect life himself. Never sinned. Defeated sin. Defeated Satan. Defeated any kind of fleshly inclination to turn against God and rebel against him. And yet, as perfect, as spotless, as innocent as he was, he bore the curse and condemnation for your law-breaking. Someone has died because the law was transgressed. I mean, think of the beauty of that. You have been offered freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation. Let that beautiful truth set in. You are free from condemnation. That means that God himself on his holy throne will not wave a finger at you in condemnation of your life because of Jesus. I might discipline. He definitely doesn't allow sin to continue to dwell in his people's hearts. There's now no condemnation. Why? Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says it later. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we may be the righteousness of God. He became what you are so that you could become what he is. He took the punishment of unrighteousness as a righteous king so that you may become righteous people of God. Now granted, we have little hope to obey God perfectly while we're in this flesh and have this mind. But freedom to obey has been granted to us nevertheless. We have freedom to not sin and have freedom to obey God. We have been set free. So we see then that the gospel tells us not what we must do so that we will be made righteous. Instead, God's, uh, God's gospel tells us that we obey God's law because God, Christ is our righteousness. And because in his righteousness, in his death and resurrection, we have been declared righteous before God. Again, it's not things that you must do to enter the kingdom of God, right? The things that he gives after this are not things that you do to enter the kingdom of God. These are things that you do because you have entered the kingdom of God. It's a wholehearted obedience that comes because Jesus was wholeheartedly obedient to the point of death on a cross. My friends, I, I, I think about this. It's like, man, we're, we, we are gripey, begrudging Christians sometimes. What do you mean he doesn't want me to lust after the lady in yoga pants? What do you mean he expects me to treat my enemies with love? What do you mean? Well, and, and the question there is just simply a statement of, look at how ungrateful we are for what Christ has done. When we turn Jesus' death into the means by which we may now do whatever we want with no condemnation, we turn Jesus into nothing more than a hall pass. He's not a hall pass. He is the means by which God's judgment has passed over us. 
Therefore, it makes absolute sense that we would want to live a life. How do you obey now that you're a Christian? What is the motivation that you have? Well, not because you're going to be judged if you don't. We obey because we love the God who's done so much for us. We obey because we love Christ. I mean, this works that way even in your marriages. Why do you not? If I were to ask you, hey, what keeps you back from having an affair? If you say, well, I might get caught, my friends, we need to set up some counseling sessions. We don't avoid sin because of of just there might be judgment, especially now that we have a promise that there's no judgment. Instead, if your answer were, well, I don't have an affair with my wife because I love her. I don't ever want her to think that I don't love her. And having an affair would be a massive statement of unlove. Well, now we're getting to the root of real relationship, right? That's the same way in our walk with God. We kind of, there, there's a massive stigma in Christianity that Christianity is a whole bunch of things you should and should not do just in case God might slap your hand or you come in the judgment. That is not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is people who willingly obey God because we love Him. Because we've been giving a new heart, a new affection. And this new affection has pushed out all the old affections. That means that we love God more now than we loved our pornography then. We love God more now than we love that little uh, tingly feeling you get in your stomach that makes you excited when you gossip. We love God now more than self-grandized proclamations of our self-importance. My friends, the only thing as a Christian able to help you obey God is love for God, and love for God comes because we have seen love of God enacted out. How? When Jesus died for you and then rose again to bring you into a relationship with God. You see how the gospel holds together there? Completely seamless in the way that it's done. So when all is said and done, as Matthew five seventeen through 20 just serves as like the heading of what we're about to go through. Really, if we were to do it justice... We would do one whole sermon on verse 17 all the way to 48 because it's one unit. And yet, I think it's so important that we first get to this part in 17 through 20. Here's the thing. We are people who are constantly saying, hey, listen, just jump to the application side. Just tell me what to do. Who cares about all this theology crap? Did I just say crap behind the pulpit? It's a polo shirt day, so just be forgiving. Um, What is the point of going through all this theology? Well, here's the thing. As much as we want to jump straight into practical righteousness, as much as we want to jump straight into application, this is a good moment just to stop and reflect. The best application you could ever do is behold Jesus. Next week, we'll have dozens and dozens of applications from six different case studies of the law that Jesus gives. But at this moment, you know the best thing for you to do? Do nothing and see Jesus. John says this, as we behold Jesus, that we're transformed into the image of Christ. We want that list of rules. We want to know how to become righteous. Tell me how to make, give me the seven steps to become righteous. And there's really not seven steps. There's just a simple statement. Jehovah to scan you. God is my righteousness. It's by beholding him that I am righteous. 
So this is an intentionality. Just in a moment, I don't get to do this very much because there's lots of scripture and every scripture can be applied. But the primary application is, when was the last time you just beheld the beauty and perfection of Jesus? The whole irony in myself, when I'm reading my own Bible devotionally, I'm like, what? listen, this is great, but can I just get, can I get a thought to think about today? Can, I just, can you give me some step to work on my anger today? But here's the irony of it all. I've missed the point. God wants me to deal with my anger, but he doesn't want me to deal with my anger without seeing the one who dealt with my anger, who paid for my anger. I cannot deal with my anger until I meet the one who died for it. Transformation and obedience begins by being transfixed by a holy, beautiful, amazing, law-fulfilling Savior. And until we get comfortable with that, seven steps to do these things, seven steps to live out the law in your motherhood, seven steps to live out the law in your fatherhood or at your work, it's not going to do you any good. Sometimes somebody just needs to say, listen, on your to-do list this week, simply make time to see Jesus. Think about him. Meditate on him. Write poetry about him. Write in your journal how beautiful you think he is. And my friends, the more you continue to reflect on the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ, I promise you, because it's a promise from Scripture, you begin to see sins fade away. Love for Christ, beauty of Christ, pushes out love for sin and the ugliness of rebellion. Now, that being said, I'm not an enemy of application. In fact, when we get into next week, we will see that though we are free from condemnation of sin, we are now been set free to obey God, which means he wants us to do things. There are practical, applicable things he wants us to live out in our daily lives. And so that's not next week. That's the next week. Dennis is coming next week. If you don't have plans, come here, Dennis, my old pastor. He, um, as I said when he came the first time, he's the man who has the blame for who I am. So um, you're welcome to come hear him. He'll have a theology night that night on suffering and God's sovereignty. I encourage you to come to that. Bring your friends. Um, and uh, anyone that's wondering how can God be sovereign over our suffering, that's going to be a great night with him. Um, but that being said, when we come back the next week, we're going to look at the six things that Jesus says. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you. You have heard it said, do not commit adult- adultery, but I say to you. And I promise you, there's tons of application there. But before you get there, we must stop and say, Jesus, show me who you are. Jesus, let me bask in the light of your love, bask in the light of your gospel, and with that, dispel my darkness. Let's pray. Father God, as we get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper, Father, I pray, Lord, that you help us, Father, to behold Jesus, God. Not just in some religious way where we're trying to stir up feelings or emotions about Jesus, but Father, let us actually contemplate deeply. Let us be moved by the beauty of the fact that the Son of God took on flesh to have that flesh pierced, to have that flesh punched, to have it whipped and broken, to see it bleed, so that we could be made righteous before you, so that we could be declared righteous before you. 
so that we could live righteous lives in your presence. So, Father, as we reflect on the Lord's Supper, I pray that as we break the bread together and as we drink the juice together, that we will be mindful that Jesus has broken his body, spilt his blood, so that we could be made righteous and holy before you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.